Alcohol Tipping Point is brought to you in partnership with Speak Studios and Speak Boise. Speak Boise is a community-driven studio space where voices from all walks of life can speak and be heard. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at Speak Studios, Speak Boise, and at their website, speakstudios.com. Speak Studios, speak and be heard. This podcast is also brought to you by Instant Imprints. Promote better with Instant Imprints. Instant Imprints are Boise's visual communications experts and your place for everything you need to promote your business, club, school, or group. As a locally owned business, Instant Imprints specializes in making your organization more visible with custom branded apparel, embroidery, promotional items, print services, and wide format printing for signs, as well as banners and vehicle graphics. Want better ways to get noticed? Visit Instant Imprints at instantimprints.com slash Boise or call 208-IMPRINT. That's 208-467-7468. Welcome back to Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm your host, Debbie Maisner, coming to you live from Boise, Idaho. I guess it won't be live. This is a podcast, not a radio show. But I do want to do a shout out to a local place here, Forenza Pizza. They have a Boise Revival Project. And what it is, it's helping musicians who've had to struggle through COVID and helping local restaurants as well. And it's just to bring entertainment and community back to downtown Boise. And you can go check them out on social or at BoiseRevivalProject.com. And there will be live concerts every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. And again, that's downtown Boise, Idaho at Forenza Pizza. So Craig is our guest actually calling in from Florida. So Craig, can you make it to downtown Boise uh, <laughs> uh, I'll give it my best shot. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I've, I just want to throw out a little Boise plug. If nobody has been here, it's amazing. Okay. But Craig Noble is my guest today for our show. And he is the author of a new book called Rethinking Drinking, The Influence That Everyone Is Under. And he sent me the book. I read it. It's very interesting, unique, um, and just like a, a, a good thought exercise about drinking and our culture and how we talk to our kids and all sorts of things. So I'm super excited to have you here, Craig. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. And, and tell me a little bit about, about yourself. You're, you're in Florida, as we all know. Um, yeah, I'm actually in I'm actually in South Florida, so it's a little different. Um, oh, uh, there are different. Yeah, there are different parts of Florida that almost are, you know, different cultures. And South Florida is sort of the uh, uh, the New York, New Jersey of uh, of the country. Um, so okay. uh, there are parts of you know Central and Northern Florida that are completely different cultures, and I'm in the part that's more like New York, New York and New Jersey, so Southeastern Florida. Fantastic. Okay. And then tell me a little bit about just your background and, and your experience with alcohol. 
Yeah, my experience with alcohol started uh, when I was, geez, probably when I was a little kid. My my uh, my dad was a big beer drinker, and <clears throat> excuse me, my um, mother not really a drinker at all. But um, you know, having sips of my dad's beer when I was a kid, not really thinking much of it, and um, you know, and then when I got up, my one of my first jobs at at uh, 15 years old, some of the guys uh, in the grocery store I was working with were get together after work and you know grab a six pack. Uh, from the cooler, leave, uh, you know, the cash on the counter for the, for the manager and, you know, sort of sit outside and, uh, shop talk and, you know, just enjoy a, a few beers. And that made a lot of sense to me. So, um, cause that's how my dad, I watched my dad grow up, you know, drinking beer with his friends after work and, and, um, and it seemed like the thing to do. So, um, that was the beginning of my experience with alcohol and, it didn't really change uh, too much throughout the rest of my teens. And, you know, even into my twenties and thirties, it was just sort of a, a social experience for me. Um, you know, the number of times I got sick and, you know, a number of times, you know, made a fool of myself or said the wrong thing or, or whatever, but all of that, I just considered normal and everyone around me um, considered that normal um, and social. Sometimes things happen and, you know, you just kind of go with it. No one really pointed fingers or, or judged or, or anything, you know, no matter how, you know, messy it got, it was never dangerous and um, just, you know, came off as normal to me. Um, the next phase of my relationship with alcohol where it started to turn was um, more into my late, late thirties um, where I was involved in a business that was really hard. Um, and it ended up turning out very, very well for everybody involved. But um, I turned to alcohol, not just as a social sort of experience, but, you know, started drinking at home alone um, after work. And, um, you know, at that time also, I somehow or another, I got turned on to um, uh, blue cheese martinis. So I went from from drinking beer and enjoying myself with my friends to, you know, the gourmet drink experience by myself at home and sort of calming down from the end of the day. And I think it was the combination of my not managing my, my emotional and, and work life um, very well, along with the more addictive and more um, heavy experience of vodka as opposed to beer that it just grabbed me. Um, and that became uh, the slide toward um, I actually became addicted to alcohol. So, um, you know, the next phase after that was realizing I had a, a problem and someone turned me on to AA and spent a number of years in and out of AA you know, drinking, not drinking, trying to figure it out. It's just, I think AA for me, it more confused me than anything else. And it took me about 10 years to just stop going back and forth to AA. And, you know, finally, um, I found a, uh, an outpatient, uh, sort of a group counseling, uh, situation. And that was what turned the, 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 uh, the corner eventually. And ultimately for me, it was understanding from a clinical point of view and a licensed therapist point of view, what is happening with my brain, what was happening with my social relationships, you know, where AA fits or fit with me, where it doesn't fit. Um, and then ultimately, you know, now I've been, you know, I, I haven't drank and I can't tell you how long I don't keep track of the time because that was one of the things I did in AA and I have a bad feeling about it. Um, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. So you, I mean, you sound like you started out like a lot of us do just kind of drinking socially and, and it just progressed to more and more where it was kind of an outlet, but then it became something to ease the pain of, of work, stress, life. Um, and then, you, like a lot of people, you tried AA, and then 
uh, found another option that worked for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been back to AA in many years. Um, and, you know, even in this outpatient sort of, you know, group therapy kind of situation that I, that I still go to and super enjoy, I just, I just like the clinical approach. I, I like the meeting being led by somebody. And I like everyone being able to crosstalk. And in AA, you know, you, you're not allowed to crosstalk. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I found what works for me. And, you know, I know a number of people, including the people that I still spend time with, you know, in my um, group meeting that that just swear by AA. And I think it's awesome, you know, to find what works for you. And, you know, this more therapy situation works for me. I just, I can't get enough of it. I, I, I just, I super enjoy understanding what's going on with everybody and kind of feeling like I've got my feet underneath me and understand what's happening in the world. And that's the point of view that I wrote that book from, you know, what is this? What is this? Well, that's a good transition. So, to your, so, and this is your first book because it, it sounds like you have three more coming out. Um, Two more. Yeah. Oh, that's right. So three total. Um, this first one, Rethinking Drinking, The Influence That Everyone Is Under. Tell me a little bit about that. I've read it, but but for our listeners, um, tell me about that book and, and what led you to write it. Yeah, so, I mean, the book is basically, it was inspired by a, a, an experience that my son and I had um, a few years ago uh, with our neighbor who got dropped off by the police and was, you know, swaying, kind of, you know, slurring drunk and the first experience that my son had with uh, anyone that behaved like that. Although, you know, everyone grows up with, you know, family members and friends drinking and my son included, um, no one ever slurring or stumbling around. Um, and his reaction was, you know, it was, it was very judgy. Um, it was, it was impatient. It was, you know, it was not nice. And, um, you know, at that point in, in our life, you know, he was, geez, early teens. Um, and now he's, he's just about to be 18. So it's a number of years ago. Um, he, his reaction kind of had me think about what is really going on because, you know, he's going to continue to have relationships with, um, you know, friends and family and they're going to be drinking. And I don't want him to think that someone stumbling around is automatically a bad thing. And I started thinking about my own past relationship with alcohol and how slippery it got. And I didn't really understand it. And I really sat down to, you know, like I said, I was inspired to explain it to him. Um, but I also figured it out for myself and, after I ended up explaining it to him, I said, you know, this is a great book idea. I've always wanted to write a book. The business that I had trouble with that, that had me um, really in, a, in an awful emotional state and ended up turning out well, provided enough money for me to, you know, concentrate full time on writing this book. And it seemed like a good use of my time. So that's where the book came from. And it's basically an observation of how most people are under the influence, whether they're drinking or not, because of the advertising, because it's in our entertainment space, you know, songs on the radio and um, television shows and movies, um, and then also the advertising itself. Um, maybe I said advertising first. So it's three things. It's it's word of mouth, how people sort of talk about alcohol being, you know, what it is. The second thing is our entertainment. And then the third thing is um, the advertising. And it just creates, you know, alcohol almost everywhere. And when I stumbled into that, I'm like, how does anyone not have a problem with alcohol? Um so that's what the book is about. It's explaining it to my son in the, with zero blame and zero judgment and just understanding that people are doing the best that they can. But this stuff is slippery, despite what the, um, the advertising says, despite what people talk about, despite how it's glamorized in our society. And I'm really proud of it. I, I, I read it this week before you and I talked um, this morning, 
And, you know, I wrote it last year, the year before, and I still love it. So anybody that's interested in buying it, I still stand by it. It's really good stuff. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting to take apart one one just episode, one event, which was your neighbor um, being returned home by the police, and just uh, what how it affected the different people around him. So, you know, one person was drinking, but uh, there was a police officer, there was a dad, his son, your neighbor who was drinking, and your neighbor's wife, and, and all of them had different responses and were affected by alcohol as well, um, by this one person's um, night on the town. Yeah, yeah, it was, when I thought about it, um, in terms of, you know, it was kind of conjecture, because I can't get into her head, you know, as wife said, I can't get into his head, but having the experience that I've had, you know, drinking from, you know, off and on from the time that I was you know, 15 years old for 20 plus years, um, you know, everyone kind of has the same reaction. It's, it's, it's not really hard to figure out. Um, and when I started thinking about it, you know, and thinking about, you know, the policeman's you know point of view, for example, how often he sees it, he just isn't affected by it. Isn't it kind of sad, you know, that people aren't affected by it. And now, you know, I don't know about, you know, in Boise, but in Fort Lauderdale, where I live, it is just holy cow everywhere. And it's not relaxing and have fun. It is screaming and yelling, and it's like a party, like almost constantly. And um, I was out the other night, and a bartender had said, I don't know how we got onto it, but said in 2019, it was the biggest year for you know restaurant sales in terms of alcohol. And he said, now in 2021, we're heading to double what it was in, in 2019, not just because most people are, or many people are moving to Florida, but because of this kind of alcohol culture that's being kind of perpetuated. And I just found that to be, you know, not only fascinating, but kind of sad at the same time. And I don't think people know what they're getting into. I consider myself a pretty smart guy. And this happened to me, you know, I slipped into it, I became dependent and addicted to to alcohol. And, you know, no one ever intends for that. And, you know, I don't think that people realize how slippery it is. Yeah, I I liked in your book, how you kind of took apart the slogan, uh, the advertise <laughs> what they put on most like drinking campaigns for alcohol right. products to drink, drink responsibly, and that's it. Um, and then you had added your own, you and your your son. It sounds like came up with your own addition to that slogan, um, which was alcohol is a mind altering habit forming substance that affects everyone differently. And all of us is under the influence, whether we're drinking or not. Did I get your new campaign slogan, right? You you did. And yeah, I just finished reading the book, you know, this morning, um, reading that last section of it this morning. And and it is that's if, if, if the alcohol companies were to come and talk to me about, you know, Hey, Craig, you know, what should we, what would she, what should we do with our slogan? It just needs a few more words. And the reason that I think it just needs a few more words is that you want to keep it small enough that that people can bite off and chew it and kind of, you know, understand it. Um, but then, you know, there's actually something to talk about there. You know, if a, if a son or a daughter um, would notice those words on the screen, hey, mom or dad, what does mind altering mean? What does habit forming mean? What does it mean if, if it affects everyone differently? I think that that would start the conversation, because in my opinion, if you ask 
a dozen people what drink responsibly means, you're going to get a dozen different answers. Or you're going to get a look like, well, it just means don't drink too much. Okay, well, why not? So my idea with that slogan, if it were to exist, is to start a conversation. Because to me, the drink the two words together, drink responsibly, it just comes off as so brilliantly incomplete. you know. And it's also like a disclaimer for them at the same time because we all know that you know, somebody that makes a mess drinking, well, they drink too much. Well, that's on them. Well, shouldn't some of the responsibility be with the, with the alcohol companies themselves? And, you know, no, because they told us to drink responsibly. So it's, to me, it, the more I thought about it, the, the, the funnier and a not funny kind of a way it got, like, this is really brilliant. They've come up with instructions and a disclaimer in two words at the same time. And no one really thinks about it. They just continue to make messes. Yeah, it's interesting. I've I've been reading a lot about just marketing in general and um, and alcohol, obviously, and and just how we view alcohol now and and kind of compared to uh, tobacco in the past. I mean, talk about a one eighty that our society has done with smoking, um, and now it's socially unacceptable to smoke I mean you're kind of a pariah at least here in Boise if you're smoking like everybody knows smoking is bad for you smoking causes cancer you know that is on the packages there's no advertisements for smoking anymore um but then alcohol which is is also dangerous it's a carcinogen um there's no doubt it has consequences it's bad for you but it's it's just out there it's a party man and um it it is the social norm I mean it's and we don't need to they don't even need to market it anymore right (laughs) we market it ourselves I mean the whole mommy wine culture and all the memes and all the coffee cups like this might be coffee you know all the you know kids are the reason moms drink like we we're doing our own marketing for drinking well, you, and you alcohol. can't I, we we are and you it's it, i mean i did the research on it i mean the numbers in terms of what the alcohol companies altogether um spend on advertising and their return on investment in terms of their overall revenue it's it's astounding it's astounding um, so even if they took the, the television commercials off and the billboards down and whatever, whatever, I think it would take a really long time for people to stop talking about, you know, just how fun and innocent and, you know, whatever, just don't drink and drive. Just don't drink when you're pregnant. Just don't drink when you're, um, at work. Don't just, just don't drink when you're breastfeeding, but otherwise have at it in your coffee with lunch at dinner, you know, on and on and on. It's, when you start thinking about it, it's absolutely amazing. So initially you asked me about the book and you know we're talking about it now, but the more I thought about it, the more it became obvious to me that it's right in front of us, plain as day, every single day all around us. And we don't realize how much of a mess it's causing because it's so normal and because it's so accepted. Yeah. And actually when they do the harm scores of different substances, like Heroin, cocaine, meth, marijuana, alcohol is the number one harm school or has the number one harm score of any other substance by far. Is that is that harm in terms of the what it does to your body or harm in terms of 
like quantity of people affected. It's both. So it's harm to society, to your body, uh, people affected. Like it, it has a very high harm score. Um, Yeah, it's, I mean, it it was a number of years ago. I I don't really watch NASCAR, but I did for a little while years ago. And I, I was so surprised that you know, beer is everywhere in NASCAR, but years ago it was the, there was the first, I forget which number it was, but it was the first car that had Crown Royale on the hood. And I'm like, holy cow, a liquor on the, on the, on the hood of the car. And this was years ago. And I thought that was interesting because I've always been a fan of marketing. But now that I look back on it, it's alcohol. It's the same as beer. It's the same as wine. It's the same as, you know, all the seltzers. It's, it's alcohol. So you're advertising alcohol at a driving event. And I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense. What you know? So. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just the number of deaths that are caused by alcohol compared to other substances. And yet, it, it is so normalized and part of our culture. Um, but going back Agreed. to teen, you know, this kind of made me think of now, you, now, even you were talking about liquor and now it's become more of a, a norm, kind of that malt liquor that's in our, in white claws. Um, you know, that drink that's really for young teenage girls, <laughs> but it's, for, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's insane, but they have really shifted their marketing to these kind of sweet seltzer, healthy drinks, um, which is marketing more and more to younger kids. And you talk a lot in your book about your teens experience. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of break down how to talk to our teenagers about this. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And and one that I think I lay out really well in the book. Um, I think where it starts with the conversation is to understand, first of all, that teenagers know everything. (laughs) They can actually teach it to you. <laughs> and if you if you go in with that understanding, yeah. you know, and let them think that they're going to show you and teach you something and say, you know, sort of validate everything they're saying and have a conversation. OK, have you thought about this also, you know, to completely validate what they're saying, because they already know everything. Otherwise, they're going to shut down. Mm-hmm. And then when you start explaining the real point that you want them to get, it's kind of alongside what they already know. I think that's the tactic. Yeah, I have a 14-year-old, almost 15-year-old, and and we've been having conversations about alcohol um, and kind of more around safety also because, I mean, your son sounds amazing. I have to say, as I was reading that, the fact that (laughs) he is. The fact yeah. that he was like so taken aback by the drunk neighbor and just like, why do people yeah. even drink? You know, uh, whereas my teen's more curious and has experimented. And um, I'm just kind of like, wow, what? Yeah, what are some other tips for talking to them? You know, obviously, I mean, she does know everything. I don't even know that we need to keep her in school anymore, but. <laughs> What are some other tips you have for teens? I, you know, I, I think that, you know, what's what's worked with with him um, is is just to answer his questions. You know, I, I the beginning of my book, the introduction it talks about um, how all of this came about. And you know, he started asking questions about, you know, what is that, you know, on a billboard or, you know, what is that on a television commercial? Because 
um, you know, the app call advertising is everywhere. And, and of course, like we talked about, you know, a minute ago, um, you know, it's in all of our, you know, songs and TV shows and, and whatever too. So the conversations with him started because he was asking questions. And like I said, in the, in the beginning of the book, I basically just kind of dismissed it. I kind of just couched it. I kind of just brushed it off by answering his questions, but not answering his questions. And as soon as it got to the point where, you know, he was upset, I said to myself, geez, I really have to start answering his questions. But to find that balance, to not say it's bad for you or poison. And again, I, I don't want to tell people what to do because there are many people on you know, Instagram and online, you know, on the different forums that I think it's poison and it works for them. And that's what they want to teach their kids. And I, you know, have at it. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's a good idea mm -hmm. to teach judgment like that. Um, but I think people should do what they think works for them. And I think to walk that line, uh, with my son or, or any other of the, the parents whose kids ask me to, you know, kind of get involved in the conversation. Um, it's, it, it really is just to validate what they're saying really answer their questions um, without contributing to the glamour and without, you know, causing them to tip into the, you know, the judgment side or the blame side that alcohol is bad and it's wrong. It can be, you know, so the conversation is necessary. It shouldn't be dismissed, but to walk the line and be careful not to be judgy or, or blamey, that's what's necessary. Yeah. And, th and that makes sense. Um, trying to think it out a little bit more too. Um, yeah. And the reason, the reason I say that is because it, it, I, I, I don't think it's going to go the way of smoking. I really don't. I think that, you know, if, if alcohol is consumed in a responsible way and my message actually gets out there, what responsibility really means. And there's, un, that's a very long conversation. Um, you know, people are going to drink more responsibly. They, at this point, they just don't understand how slippery it is. So when the world gets to that place, if I have anything to do with it, you know, I don't want my son or any of the kids that I've talked to to understand alcohol as bad or poisonous or whatever, because I don't want them looking at people and automatically jumping to conclusions about their life or about their habits or about their, you know, whatever. Um, so I think this is a really important conversation to have with with kids and adults. Um, and I think it's going to contribute to people really learning how to drink responsibly. Because, like I said, I, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I really, I don't think alcohol is going to go anywhere in, in terms of going away. Yeah, I don't. I think that I I'm with you. Where I just want people to be educated, and and I think a lot of people aren't educated about alcohol. Like you said, like um, it is an addictive substance. Like just so <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> Uh, it does cause cancer, just so you know. But, you know, we all ultimately want to be free uh, to make our own choices. And and then also just assigning a substance as good or bad. Um, I work in a, a wellness department at a hospital. I work with a lot of dietitians, and they actually talk about food this way. Like, there's no good food or bad food. There's only food. You know, it, it doesn't. I mean, what does that even mean? That's just an adjective. That's not necessarily a fact, what makes something good or bad. Um, but part of it is to take the power away from cake or sugar. You know, when, when you say, like, you can't have that, you can never have that, um, that just kind of triggers your limbic system, your emotional system to be like, what? Now I want right. it. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Well, I, I, what you were just saying made me think of another sort of tactic or, or style that I've, conversations I've, that I've had with people younger than me or even people that are older than me that have acted uh, – they're acting young because they got too much alcohol in their system. The reason they're paying attention to what I'm saying is I'm telling them what it means to them. So mm-hmm. it's not just you know stay away from cake. Listen, this is what it does to your body. This is what it does to your nervous system. So enjoy a piece of cake. You probably shouldn't have three because this is what's going to happen. So the conversations that I've learned work for my son. He actually articulated it for me. Dad, the difference between the way that you talk to me and other people talk to me is they tell me what to do, but they don't tell me why they're saying what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And they certainly don't tell me what it means to my life at this particular time, you know, as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old. So I try to, when I'm answering these questions and talking about alcohol, relate it to where they are in their relationship with it. What does this mean? What does it do to me? Why do I care? Because it's so easy for someone to say, so what, and walk away. But really, they don't say what. They don't say so what. They just walk away. They're not listening anymore. So I'm sure to, if I was to talk to another parent, you got to tell them what it means to them. And you can't scare them because they can't be scared, right? They're bulletproof. But this is what it means. You have one piece of cake, you're probably fine. You get in the habit of having two or three pieces of cake every day. Listen, you're going to blow up because that's just what sugar does to your body. It just is. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. Now, on on the other side of things, what would you say are like your top tips, your top advice you'd give to someone who wants to give up alcohol? All right. So this is that's a really good question. I'll tell you, I had a DM. I'm in South Florida. Like I said, I had a DM conversation going back and forth with a woman in Melbourne, Australia, mm-hmm. two nights ago. So it's like noon her time and 11 o'clock my time, something like that. And her husband, she liked my Instagram feed and just reached out and told me who she was. And right. And I just got into this conversation with her over DM. And I sum, I'll summarize it for you the same way I summarize it for her. Her husband needs to understand three things. Number one, you got to want to quit. Number two, you got to believe that you can. Number three, you got to maintain it with some sort of clarity of purpose, some kind of purpose and a clarity about that purpose that is bigger than alcohol. So that's family. That's a hobby. That's, you know, your work, whatever it is, it's bigger and you can't drink alongside of doing it. That's the way to maintain it. The fourth piece, which sort of covers all three is you have to surround yourself with people that are doing the same thing you're doing or support you in that. So to me, if someone wants to change their relationship with alcohol, number one, you got to want it. Number two, you have to believe that you can have it. Number three, there's a clarity of purpose that is bigger than alcohol. And number four, you're surrounding yourself with people that are doing the same thing or are supporting you heavy duty with what you're trying to do. Yeah, find your tribe. I mean, we're such uh, a tribal society. And and when it's when the norm, when the tribal norm is to drink, it's it's really hard to go against the grain. So finding people that aren't drinking is so important. Community is very important. Yeah. And chances are, you know, when you find that the third piece of clarity of purpose, the thing that is bigger than drinking, if you find those people to spend time with and, you know, you're learning how to play softball or whatever it is, chances are they love it as much as you would like to love it or you're getting into it. They're not boozing while they're doing it. So that's, that counts, you know, um, and, and I think that speaks to AA, you know, everyone in AA for the most part is not drinking, mm-hmm. you know, so that's a, 
a supportive community of people saying, don't drink today. All right. For me, it wasn't enough. I needed that clarity of purpose piece. That's what was missing there. Yeah. So what, what is your clarity of purpose? Oh, well, it's this work I'm doing now. I mean, I, I read, I wrote this book. I was going to write two more. And now the more feedback that I get about it, I think there is a movement associated with it. I think there's something that can exist alongside of um, AA. I think there's something that can exist alongside smart recovery. Um, I think there's something that can exist that is short of, um, you know, going to full-blown therapy and examining, you know, all of your, you know, nuts and bolts. I think there's some kind of middle ground that isn't out there. And I'd like to pursue that not only for adults that are trying to change their relationship with alcohol, but also for kids before they get involved in it too much and, you know, find themselves having a correct course. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Craig. I think um, we, the the way we treat alcohol addiction is we treat it at the end and we don't like pre-treat it. We, we don't do as much prevention or pre you know, like I said, I'm a, a wellness nurse and we do pre-diabetes counseling. We do pre-hypertension. We, um, we do all these kind of disease management pre-interventions, but we don't do that with alcohol and drinking. We, um, we, we want that person to be rock bottom before they get any treatment. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that my, my, my son's, um, mother and and his stepfather are heavily into the church and, and their, their thing is, um, you know, we'd like you to know about Jesus and, uh, you know, Ty and I talk, I, I believe in God, I believe there's a sort of a way to the universe and all that. But my thing isn't to answer questions that people aren't asking because I don't think they're listening. Um, and they have a different calling and they have a different approach to their strong belief. I have just as strong a belief about alcohol, but I know for sure, for me, I know for sure that unless someone is asking me the question, they're not listening to my answer. So that said, um, you know, because the alcohol advertising and, you know, the society we live in, you know, many kids grow up to kind of understand a lot about alcohol without even asking a question. I think this message that I'm talking about has to be sort of decorated and so slick and so sort of, I don't know, put out there that people start to learn without having asked the question. So I'm still figuring out how to do that. But the way that I started with writing these three books is I just wanted to help myself. I wanted to put something out there. If someone was interested in reading it, you know, I wrote a book. Um, but now the more that I get into it, um, the first or the next tier was, geez, if no one's asking me the question, you know, why are they going to answer? I'm sorry. Why are they, why are they going to listen to the answer? And now I've gotten to the point where I actually have a pretty sharp marketing mind. There's a way to position this. So people start paying attention, even though they're not asking the question. So I'm not sure that that made a whole lot of sense, but I, yeah, it did. It's give them okay, <laughs> what, I mean, that going back to marketing, it's like, give them what they want, not what they need. Or, you know what I mean? Like you're, a lot of people just want, um, they want to drink moderately. They want to, uh, be like a normal drinker, quote unquote, but maybe that's not necessarily what they need. Maybe they are addicted and they need to completely abstain from alcohol. If I was to go. Well, yeah. Or, in, yeah or, or in my situation, you know, my, my business thing that brought all this about the excessive drinking at home alone that turned into, you know, dependence and an addiction, 
you know, I wasn't solving the problem. You know, I was feeling better, but I wasn't solving the problem. And that becomes very slippery. You know, so if there's if there's if there's awareness out there that, um, you know, maybe someone doesn't necessarily have heard my message, you know, or your message, but someone else has heard it and you see a friend who's starting to drink excessively. Hey, have the question, have the conversation with them. You know, is there anything we can talk about? Is there something on your mind that that, you know, because you seem to be drinking a lot without calling them obsessive, without calling them heavy, without calling them an alcoholic, you know, you're just drinking to the point where, you know, is there something you want to talk about? I don't think people have that conversation, you know, because it's either alcoholic or not alcoholic, right? Or heavy drinker or casual drinker, you know, and there's so many shades in between that it can be sort of, um, I don't know, discussed before it gets to be, you know, a huge problem. And I don't, I think that people shy away from it because it's just, it's not fun to talk about, you know, a problem with alcohol. No, no one wants to be labeled. There, There's definitely a stigma. Um, there's a mental health stigma anyway uh, in our country. And absolutely. And if you're the person talking to someone, I mean, who is going to be that person? Because sometimes it's like shining a mirror on your own life. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, interesting. What would you say are some other things you learned? You know, you mentioned that outpatient therapy, group counseling like that, that had been so much more helpful for you. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, my personality is, you know, I'm more logical, I'm more mechanical. Um, You know, I definitely have a spiritual side. Um, It's not a religious side, it's more spiritual. Um, so I understand the value of prayer and meditation. You know, I believe it works. I'm there. Um, but, you know, the AA approach to me was more along the lines of, you know, this is what you should do. Don't drink today because it's bad. You'll go to jail. You'll wreck your car. Your wife will leave you. Your husband will whatever. Um, and when I started asking questions in that forum, the answers were, you know, they were kind of cryptic and almost making fun of, you know, it was, well, just keep coming back, you know, and the laugh or the, you know, they have something that I don't have. And the difference between what they have and what I don't have is their time. So that's one of my things that has to do with, you know, not broadcasting how much time I have, because, you know, I've been in this outpatient thing for the last, I don't know, the last year. Um, and, you know, it's almost like the sun has come out, you know, little by little. And now I feel like I'm standing, you know, it's just a gorgeous, clear day because of what I've learned. So, again, I think that people should do what works for them. And the people that have 20 years and they're happy in AA and it's just keep coming back and that works for them right on. I was not that person. So the therapy and the understanding of how um, my emotions were affected, my brain was affected, how long it's going to take to heal my brain how I practiced my way into a lifestyle that was a bunch of alcohol triggers, how I'm going to practice my way out of it. That was very helpful to me. And it continues to be kind of the path that I'm on. So that's why the therapy works for me. Now there are other people that are, that I I know for sure are in AA and they like the rules. I'll follow the rules. Just don't make me go back and examine my, you know, previous relationship or my childhood or, you know, uncle so-and-so, you know, called me a name when I was five and, you know, they just don't want to go back there, but an AA works for them. I don't have anything to say to them, but for me, I need to know why everything added up to this really smart, capable, you know, all these positive things guy 
ended up, you know, face down on the couch drinking a bottle of vodka in an afternoon, you know, and, and the therapy helps me with that. Yeah, I think I think for me too, understanding the whys and understanding your brain is just like, wow, this is just how my brain works and I'm not broken. Um, it's very helpful to have con contextual uh, excl explanations for things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and if you just pay attention to the word of mouth and the advertising and the you know the the, the stories on television. Basically, what alcohol is, is it's this legal kind of relaxing kind of party starter. And, you know, no one talks about how it physiologically, chemically affects your brain. You know, and when you say the word brain damage, people are like, oh, here comes another one of those. It really does damage your brain. It doesn't break it, but it damages your brain. And there, there, there needs to be a healing time physically. And then, of course, the emotional and the mental side kind of getting back to where your life, you know, should be. Um, that I learned in, in therapy and, you know, group settings, listening to other people's stories. And it, and it makes sense to me also when I, you know, in South Florida, there's a, there's a pretty big homeless population. And when I see the guy on the side of the road with the, you know, just need a beer or anything helps and, you know, he really looks very distraught. If that guy were to, or a girl, if they were to quit drinking, it's really hard, you know, it's really hard physically and it's really hard mentally because all those memories start rushing back. No wonder they stay addicted. No one's explaining to them this is what's going on, you know. But again, my three things. The first one is you got to want to stop. But the reason that they, that they don't want to stop is that emotionally and physically, it's really hard. It seems insurmountable. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah. So what what do you um, see for your future? Besides, you know, are you going to write those two books? It sounds like you're really excited about what's happened with this one. What else? is Yeah, going on? I, I, I really am. I mean, I sat down to, you know, with a bunch of notes about how I explained to my son and, you know, talk to friends and family and, you know, they're like, wow, that, this is your book idea, you know, because I've been trying to write a book for years. Um, so this finally turned into that. Um, but it wasn't enough. So now there's two more and, and the next two have to do with, you know, the merry ground of drinking and not drinking. Uh, and the third one has to do with recovery. And, um, there are things that I've seen in recovery and in therapy situation that I think are missing the mark a little bit too, again, just in my opinion. So I'm definitely going to finish these next two books. Um, I'm working on them, uh, as we speak. Um, and the other thing I'd like to do is, is probably develop more of a, like an awareness kind of a course because some people don't like to read or don't like to listen to books, but they'll sit and watch a video. Um, so that's in the works as well. Um, and again, from my point of view about, you know, seeing this, you know, alcohol addiction and, and anyone's relationship with alcohol, there's kind of a, a continuum that exists um, where people don't realize that they're moving along until all of a sudden they cross the line and now they can't drink anymore. Um, and I think if people had a heads up about that, um, I think it would help a lot of people. I wish it existed for me. So I'm going to write two more books and I'm going to create this course. Um, and I think it's going to fit well alongside of the AA stuff. I think it's going to fit well alongside of the rehab stuff. And I think it's going to fit well, um, with people that are trying to explain something to their kids and not come off judgmental because they're drinking while they're sort of explaining to their kids to be careful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I look forward to reading your next books. Um, how can someone find you? I, you know, I, I, I get in touch with by, or through uh, Instagram um, at Rethinking the Influence. 
Um, and then also my website, same thing, rethinkingtheinfluence.com. Um, there's a way to message me through there. Um, and then we can set up a conversation um, from that contact. But those are the two best ways. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Craig, so much. Um, so much to talk about, so much good stuff. I really appreciate you and what you're doing. And I'm glad that you took the time to come and talk to the listeners of the show. Yes. And I, yes, and I appreciate you inviting me. Um, I love what you're doing. I'm going to listen to your other podcast. The one that I just listened to was very good. Um, I just, I think that more awareness needs to happen. And I think we can, you know, not make alcohol go away, um, but make people a little more aware of what responsibility means with it. In which case, you know, I think this would be a much easier place to live. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you. Enjoy sunny Florida and then come to Boise sometime. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll be in touch. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys, so please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.